We're going to be spending most of today um, looking at Mary's song at the end there. But uh, yeah, as we approach that, I'm going to pray that God would help us to focus and to listen, particularly as the smell of sausages wafts through, that we'd uh, be able to stay here in the moment and and that God would speak to us by his word. Um, So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we return to your word, that we would see something of your character that um, would yeah, be, be made clearer to us, that, that um, we would be able to grasp, grasp something of your vastness and greatness um, as we read your word again today. Amen. Well, a question that I've been wondering is, what, what is it that is so captivating about the Christmas story? Over the next couple of weeks in the Sydney Anglican Diocese we're a part of, we're likely to see thousands of people who would otherwise never be seen in church come in and sit in on one of our services to hear the story of Jesus' birth as it's recorded in the Gospels. Many of them do this year after year, and the story somehow never gets old for them. But what is it that's so captivating about the Christmas story? Bobette Buster teaches storytelling at a university in California. And she says that it may very well be the the greatest story ever told. She says, looking back on kind of a millennia of people who have been captivated by the story, she says the story has everything. Audacity, wonder, awe, journey, vulnerability, courage, tragedy. And they all collide in a single narrative. She says if you were to direct a Hollywood movie, it has all the typical elements of great storytelling there. She says that the the characters of of the story are one of the things that draw us in. She says maybe the character of of Mary uh, with a combination of courage and vulnerability. The shepherds and the wise men coming together. The story crosses class barriers with kingly presence for a peasant family. She says the angels bring a sense of otherworldly wonder and awe, along with the synchronicity of of all the different events of, of the star appearing in the sky and the um, Roman census and everything happening all at once that had to happen for, for this to, to turn out the way it did. She says it's, it may very well be the greatest story ever told. Now, of course, this isn't a Hollywood movie. This is the, the story that God is writing in history. And it may, it may very well be the greatest story ever written, but it's not because of Mary's courage and vulnerability. It's not because of the crossing of class barriers, nor the awe and wonder of the angels. That make this, that's not what makes the story captivating, as great as those things might be. What is it that's so captivating about the story? Well, when Mary suddenly finds herself in the middle of it, you could ask the question, what is it that captivates her? What is it that allows her to, to burst out in song, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour? Well, she is captivated by the identity of the baby. It's the identity of the baby that is far more captivating than the other people in the story. The identity of baby that is more thrilling than the angels. The identity of the baby that crosses far greater barriers than the wise men. The identity of the baby that shows far greater courage and far greater vulnerability than Mary. J.I. Packer says that it is in the identity of that baby lying in the straw that the profoundest and most 
unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. Let me say that again because it's a, it's a mouthful. I, I, um, the identity of that baby lying in the straw, in the identity of that baby lying in the straw, the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. It is the identity of the baby that makes the story truly captivating. And that's because when we understand who the baby is, we don't just see a, a wonderful story. We don't just see a lovely nativity scene. We see God's character on display. We see God's mercy for the lowly. Knowing that God became a baby takes us straight to the heart of humility. And today, as we look at Mary's song, we see God's mercy to Mary in her low position, in a lowly position. And we see Mary's response of overwhelming joy. But then we see that God's mercy to Mary is not a one-off unique event. It's actually a pattern of who God is. And we're therefore invited to, to join in Mary's joy, to marvel with her at the magnitude of God's mercy to the lowly. God's attention to the lowly is a theme of the story right from the, from the beginning. God appears to Mary despite her lowly status in the eyes of society. The story begins, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. A couple of things to notice there already. We see God's direct involvement in the story from the beginning. God, God himself sent the angel. This wasn't just something that happened. God sent the angel Gabriel and it's not just any angel, it's, it's but a named one. The angel Gabriel appears a few times throughout the Bible, but the significance of his name here is that it's not just any angel. This is a grand moment. God sent the angel Gabriel. Uh, we know that whatever's happening here must be important. So on the one hand, we have this grand beginning. God himself sends the angel Gabriel. But to where? Well, to Nazareth, which he ex feels the need to explain is a town in Galilee. As if to say, chances are you probably haven't heard of it. Not to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. Not to Bethlehem, the city of Judah's kings. But to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. So right from the beginning, we have this, this juxtaposition of, of the whole event, of God's grand involvement through people and places that are ordinary, really. And as the story unfolds, Mary finds it very hard to process the news for that reason, that the angel greets her as one who is highly favored by the Lord in verse 28. But her response in 29, rather than being comforted, it greatly troubles her. She wonders what kind of greeting this could be. How is she supposed to make sense of that? That the angel would appear to her and tell her that she is highly favored. It's a moment of, wait, me? Really? Who am I? By the time we get to the song, she's blown away. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Why? For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. What is it that's blown her away? It's, it's that God has been mindful of her. That he would even be aware of a young girl from Nazareth. Let alone choose her to be the mother of God. It's a moment of, wait me, really? Who am I? And I wonder if you've ever had a, a who am I moment like that. Maybe you got a call for a job interview that you didn't expect and... Internally, you're saying, wait, me, really? While you're trying to kind of contain it all. 
I remember when I first learned that Sophie was interested in me, my now wife. I remember thinking, wait, me? Really? Who am I? I, I, I thought she was awesome. I'm pretty sure I'm just a regular guy. And so uh, the thought, thought astounded me. But Mary has a who am I moment like no other. Mary rejoices that God himself has been mindful of her, even in her humble state. So that's the first thing we see, that God um, is mindful of Mary, even in her, her humble state, even in, in her lowly position. As the story continues, she's greatly troubled and wonders what kind of greeting it could be. Then the angel explains to her the news that the long-awaited Messiah will be born to her, despite being a virgin. And at the end of it, she simply replies, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then she hurries off to her, to her cousin's house in the country and it's there, together with her also pregnant cousin, it's there that she processes the news. And it's there that she writes this song. And this is not a song that spontaneously springs from her experience. It's a song of deep reflection on the character of God. It's a song that is seriously informed by the Old Testament. It's a song that draws heavily from all over the Psalms and from stories all over the Old Testament and so we get this picture that at first she's troubled by the news, who am I? But as she returns again to the Old Testament, she rebuilds her picture of who God, God is. And she realizes that again and again, God chooses to work through not, not the rich, not the powerful, not the exceptional, but the ordinary, the lowly people like herself. And so her experience with the revelation from the angel leads her to deep reflection on scriptures. And it seems like her reflections on scriptures lead her to understand the character of God, to eventually lead her to the point where, we, where she can say, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That's quite a response, isn't it? Um, my soul glorifies the Lord, we read here. We've learned the version in the ESV before. Um, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, you'll remember, we're not talking about magnifying something like an ant, but uh, to, to make it appear bigger than it is, but magnifying something like a telescope that makes something colossal clearer. Using a telescope allows us to experience the awe and wonder of seeing planets and stars and solar systems. Using a telescope, you can begin to grasp just exactly what it is you've been looking at all those other nights. And Mary's experience here is a bit like that. Her soul magnifies the Lord, not because the Lord is an ant that needs zooming in on, but because sometimes it's hard to comprehend his vastness. It's as though she begins to grasp just who it is she's been praying to all those other nights. And, but what is it that, that magnifies the Lord to her? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It seems from the way that the story fits together that it was her, firstly, her experience of an encounter with God. And secondly, her reflection on scripture from that has helped her to see the vastness of God's character with more clarity. And leads her to say, my, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. And so let's take a look a bit more closely at her song where she reflects on her own experience first. Uh, but, but more significantly for us, how it's pointed her to the very heart of God. And see what we see that um, 
God's mercy to the lowly isn't a unique thing just for Mary's situation, but is a part of who he is, a, a pattern in his character. So as we look at the song, she writes firstly of her own experience in verse 46 to 49. Um, it might help you if you're kind of following along as we look through this. So 46 to 49, she's, we've already spoken about this already, that God has been mindful of her in her humble state, that the mighty one has done great things for her. But then she turns in verse 50 to consider the pattern that God consistently shows mercy to the humble. She recalls his mercy extends to whom? To the most impressive, to the top 10%, to the highest scorers. No, his mercy extends to those who fear him. She's likely thinking of something like Psalm 103 verse 11 here, where God is merciful and gracious to all those who are oppressed because of his steadfast love to those who fear him. On the other hand, she reflects, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm in, in verse 51. To, to whom? To the enemy? To the scum of the earth? To the lowly peasants? No, he has scattered those who are proud. You could think here of the Tower of Babel, where God where the, the people try to build a tower to heaven as an expression of their, their pride, really, where God literally scatters the people across the world for their pride. As she continues to, to reflect, she says, she remembers, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. She's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Can you hear there how God is a great equalizer. These verses there, especially at the end, but the whole thing, uh, echo the song of Hannah, who finds herself in a really similar situation and also recognizes this great reversal that God brings, that he consistently and continually shows favor to the lowly. And so Mary's recognizes this is not something unique to her situation, but that again and again, God continues to show mercy to the lowly. And that's really important for us to understand, too, because the pattern continues. It doesn't stop with Mary. Uh, this is who God is. This is the God that we worship, too. One of the greatest misunderstandings about God is that because God is great, he works through great people. Or that because he is exalted, he favors what is exalted among us. But just the opposite is true. God's holiness and greatness is expressed in his compassion to the nobodies, in his kindness to the poor, in his faithfulness to his unfaithful people. It's God's mercy to the lowly that shapes how he interacts with his people. It's important as well because we see this continue as Jesus grows up. Jesus, who is God himself come to earth, shows this same pattern of relating to people. Jesus was often accused of mingling with the unrespectable, the unpopular, the lowly and, and the lowlifes, the sinners and the tax collectors. But in Jesus' own words, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus coming from, from his birth, to his life, to his death, from the beginning to the end. Well, many people expected it to, to, the Messiah to come as a celebration of the elite. But Jesus' coming was an act from beginning to end of mercy to the lowly. 
because our God is a God who shows mercy to the lowly. And so where does that leave us? Mary's had this encounter with God that shocked her. How could God be mindful of, of her? And as she's reflected, she's realized, oh, that's, that's who God is. That, that is our God. That's always how God works. God shows mercy to the lowly. And so her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. She's left marveling at the mercy of God. But where does that leave us? Well, if this isn't just about God and Mary, but about who God is, then we're invited with Mary to marvel at the mercy of God. We don't need to have had this experience in order to marvel because God is unchanging and we have the same scriptures that Mary had, plus we have the full revelation of who he is in Jesus. And so how could we marvel at the, at the magnitude of God's mercy with Mary? I've got four things for you. First is to recognize our ordinariness. I don't mean that in a, in a harsh way. I've met many of you and um, come to recognize many of you as quite extraordinary people in many different ways. But underneath that, all of us are just ordinary people. And when we see the holiness of God, to see the greatness of God, our, our ordinariness shines more clearly. Right? We, we see um, our unworthiness of his mercy and compassion. Our tendency can to be to underplay how much we need God's mercy, to see ourselves as really pretty good, to assume that God is kind to us because really we're not too far gone. Some, some seem to think that recognizing our spiritual lowliness might lead to a kind of spiritual depression, but just the opposite is true. Mary recognized her humble state, and it was that which led her to, to rejoice in God, her Savior. And so the first thing we need to do is recognize our ordinariness, recognize that we can depend only on the mercy of God, that we too need God's mercy. The second is to recognize that being a Christian is a great place to be ordinary. Because God shows extraordinary mercy to ordinary people. And when we're humble enough to acknowledge our need before God, then we, then we can begin to marvel at the magnitude of God's mercy. Uh, the third is... Um, Actually, I need, I need kids' help with this one. I wonder if anyone can tell me the, the verse we read at the beginning. I'm looking for the first hand I see. Um, yep, Caden, and because you're over 10, I'm looking for the verse reference as well, if you we can do it. Yep. Yep. Very close. Yeah, that's close enough. Well done. That, that's, that's really good. Do you want to have a go as well? Thank you. Well done. Um, so, uh, I do have a prize for you in a second. Th thanks for that, Caden. Um, but... My third challenge is you. So we've recognized our ordinaries. We've recognized um, that really being a Christian is a great place to be an ordinary. My third challenge to you is this week to pull out your telescopes. Uh, so kids, adults alike, um, set yourself the task to pull out your telescopes, by which I mean set yourself the task of seeing God's character more clearly, of grasping the greatness of God. Uh, we began with that quote that it's in the, 
the baby lying in the hay that the most the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation are found. Uh, it's easy for us at Christmas time to kind of look at a surface level at the nativity, at the wonderful story that may well be the greatest story ever told that is captivating in and of itself. Uh, but the reason it is ought to be captivating is because of the identity of the baby lying in a manger. And so my challenge is to try to grasp the, the bigness the, the vastness of God. I like we um, pull out our telescopes and, and when we look at the moon, we can understand just how big it is. Um, when we reflect on the character of God, uh, we, the more deeply we're able to do that, more, we're more able to see just the, the vastness of his character and particular of his mercy to the lowly. And so that's my challenge to you this, this Christmas is to pull out your telescopes, see the character of God more clearly to grasp something of his greatness. It might lead you to, uh, to see even more what, what it is that you've been kind of looking at every other night. That's what a telescope does, what, helping us to see more clearly the character of God who we've been praying to every other night. Uh, that's the third thing, play your telescopes this week. My fourth and final thing, um, Mary, when she understands the character of God, is led to praise. She bursts out in song. Um, she wants to share the good news with others. And so my final challenge to you is to go tell it in the Blue Mountains um, that Jesus Christ is born.